There's a lot of fragmentation in terms of people's views of NFTs right now. Some people think it's literally going to destroy the world. Some people think it's literally the fourth, third, second, fifth coming of Jesus, depending on like where in the, in the religious spectrum you are. Welcome to Navix the Metacast Roundtable 36. And today there was sun in the morning, which is quite nice. So I hope you're having a sunny day as well. And today I'm joined by Sebastian Park and Matt Dion. And we're going to be talking about some exciting topics. Uh, the first one is going to be how to pronounce new, uh, sorry, pronounce, uh, prioritize new game ideas, the costs of buggy game releases, and talking a little bit about YouTube's creator NFTs. Um, my name is Maria Gillis, and we'll start with some quick introductions. Uh, Matt, if you want to go first. Sure. Hi, Maria. Thanks for having me on. Um, my name is Matt Dion. I'm a product manager by trade, uh, currently working at EA on the mobile side. I've also worked at Jam City and Pocket Gems in the past. Um, and I've been contributing for Novik as a writer for the most part for about a year now, um, doing various kind of deep dives and shorter pieces for the newsletter. And I'm Sebastian Park. I'm at Seb Park on Twitter. I am a venture partner at Bitcraft, at the gaming, esports, ostensibly Web3 fund, and also a co-founder for Infinite Canvas, which is a publisher for user-generated games on platforms like Roblox, Fortnite Creative, Minecraft, GTA 5 Online. Thanks for joining. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it, oh, exciting news. So um, Navic has a YouTube page now, so you can find these podcasts on video by going to YouTube and you can see our faces while we're talking. Yes, we're all smiling now. <laughs> right, it's, it's, that's, it's, for some people, that's a feature. It might be a bug in this regard. <laughs> Um, so yeah, we'll just uh, kick off with the first topic today, which is how to prioritize uh, new game ideas. And before I joined the gaming industry, I've always played games. I, I used to think, oh, how, how hard can it be to make a good game? It must be so easy. And yet um, something else was was in store for, for my career. And I'm sure for um, your careers as well. So the, the reason we're talking about this topic today is to maybe help someone someone who's out there trying to figure out what's the next game that they should be dedicating their time to to pursue and yeah let us know at the when you when you listen to the episode let us know if this has helped in any way it's always really nice to hear to hear your feedback so yeah i always like to start with hypotheticals okay so imagine you've joined this company it's full of money and <laughs> someone tells you you have this team and now you can go and build a game how, Matt, how, how would you start this process? Um, I'd first want to sort of survey the landscape a little bit. Like, is this a brand new company that has never made a game before? Or um, have they made other titles in the past? Because it's much easier to make a similar game to previous games that you've iterated on or prototyped on than it is to start from scratch, building all your tools, all your internal tech, and developing expertise. Because there's a whole part of it it has to do with looking at the competition, understanding how their mechanics work and how you're going to do a different twist on it. Um, so first thing I would do is understand what are, what are our sort of core competencies as game developers first. If there are none, um, maybe you would start by looking at 
the business opportunity. Uh, what does the competitive landscape look like? What are the other titles in some genres that you're interested in? Is it, you know, really a red ocean and there's a lot of competition, you're gonna have a hard time pulling players away from the incumbents to join your game, or it's a sort of relatively unexplored design space, which may be more attractive from a business perspective, but may also be riskier because it's an unproven market. So those are some of the things that I would look at first. And, you know, lastly, and perhaps most importantly, is like, what is most interesting to you? What do you want to work on? Um, I think the games industry is, it's a passion business. And if you're working on a game that you're not really inspired and motivated by, you know, you might not be bringing your best self to work every day. So I think that's an important consideration too. That That's really interesting because when I was, when I was studying to to enter into the industry. A lot of the articles and podcasts, just resources that I was interacting with, the, they kept saying, don't design a game for yourself, design a game for, for an audience. So how, <laughs> how do you balance, you want to be working on something that you're really passionate about, however you're designing with an audience in mind? Um, I think it's just being able to be objective and kind of take a step back and set aside your own biases. Um, I'm trying to think of an example. Like I love um, really deep story driven RPGs um, and complex systems and really deep combat systems and things like that. But if I'm designing for maybe a, a mobile audience on shorter sessions, I might move away from something like that where narrative, let's say, is not as proven out in the mobile uh, space. Um, I would say like, generally speaking, of course, fewer people are interested in like deep stories on a mobile game as they are um, competitive PVP combat, for example. So just being able to take a step back and be conscious of your own kind of biases and things that you prefer as a player is really important. And, you know, one of the ways to do that is just play a lot of games and understand what's out there. Do you think it's important for a company to know what kind of games they want to make from, from the start? For example, if a company says, we love merge games, we want to dedicate our time to doing merge. I think it's, it's helpful, but I don't, I don't think it's required. I mean, part of it, um, uh, Sebastian can probably speak to this. It has to do with like how much runway do you have and how much time do you have to figure it out? Um, a great example uh, from the Bitcraft side of things, there's a studio called Frost Giant, right? And their specialty is real-time strategy games. And the people who founded that company are real-time strategy experts who came from Blizzard and worked on StarCraft and Warcraft. And so they have a clear expertise in a specific space, specific genre, and they knew from the outset that that's what they're gonna go work on. Um, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, but if you're bringing in founders with a variety of backgrounds from a variety of different genres or mobile versus PC versus console, you may need to do a little bit of soul searching first to figure out what is it that we're all aligned on that we can kind of hit the ground running. Yeah, Sebastian, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think the question itself is an interesting one in part because the it's worth taking a step back and thinking through what it means to create a game and what it means to approach this problem. Uh, there are some easy pitfalls to avoid, right? So the first one is actually make something. I think that's something that we see a lot, especially in a lot of creative ecosystems, not just gaming, but also 
you know, music, movies, etc. There is a huge barrier that's going from zero to one. So going from not having made something to have made something. You don't want perfect to be enemy of good either. And so one of the things that certainly we look for both at Bitcraft on the gaming side, but also myself personally, we want to see people who've made games and we want to see games. And I don't have a built-in opinion. Uh, you know, Some of my colleagues may disagree with this, but I don't have a built-in opinion as to the type of game. Each game has its pluses and minuses. And at the end of the day, games break down to a combination of user acquisition, retention, and monetization. And where you want your game to live is really a function of how you've built a game. I come from, I think similar to Matt, came from a background of mobile gaming. And so because of the era I became a game developer during, I'm very metrics driven, right? So I, you know, very much was on the like first wave of mobile games, right? Your dots of the world, right? That's a very different ecosystem than your story driven AAA cyberpunk games. And I have a lot of respect for those people, similar to how I love playing StarCraft. And I have a lot of respect for the Frost Giant guys. What I will say, though, and this is certainly true, is there seems to be a huge difference between someone who spends 10 years on a project and never ships anything versus someone who spends 10 days on a project and ships something. And I think, generally speaking, you want to be in the latter category than the former category because, to Matt's point, you just don't know. And we, no one knows, right? The game type, the game archetype, how, what game you is successful or not successful is really out of your control. <laughs> if you can admit that, you're on a really good initial step. If, if it is out of, out of your control, I think that's what I find quite difficult in, in this topic because it just feels like there are so many factors out, out of your control. And let's say in this, in this hypothesis that you're a studio that already has one hit game, we can then talk about if it's your your first game. Um, if you already have a hit game, you're trying to find out what's next and maybe have a vision of the kind of games you want to make and you have a list of ideas, how how would you select from from those ideas which one to, to go with first? Yeah, I mean, game, uh, we have to also have the a prior constraint that making games is impossible. <laughs> I think that's something that we should accept coming into this ecosystem, which is that Game design, game production, game creation is almost an impossible task. If you just think about the sheer number of people involved and the things that have to go right for you to make it happen, it's just really unlikely, which is why it's such a passion-driven industry. It's an industry full of people who understand, hopefully, some people don't, but like hopefully understand that this is an impossible dream. And we're going after this dream because we're so passionate about gaming. And I think that's awesome. What I will say to people... Uh, is that you should, if you have the expectation, it should change how you approach these problems. Some of the best game studios in the world, the joke for Riot for 10 years was that they were Riot game as opposed to Riot games, right? Here, here's a group of people who've made an amazing game in League of Legends, and it still took them 10 years to make anything else that resembled valuable for them. The folks at Jagex who created RuneScape, you know, they've been trying to make a new game for a decade plus, right? That was the thesis in which they raised money back 10 years ago. They've done really well with RuneScape. There hasn't been another IP or game they've made that's performed even closely as well as they have. So if you're a studio and you're embarking on the next game, if you are you know, super giant games or you're one of these double fine games, really what you're doing is you can go about it in two ways. You can just cross your fingers, you can hope, you can iterate on a single game title and get to the point where you're happy with it and trust in your taste. Or you can do what you know, places like EA do or, or, or Supercell does, which is 
go in, you do all of them, <laughs> and you hope <laughs> you track you track if any of them work out, and if they start working out, you really really push harder into there. I can't emphasize enough. One of the things that I see as a fallacy among new game developers out there is this idea that it just works, and that's just not the case. If you look at Genshin Impact, which I think is a game that people talk about a lot nowadays, that was iteration number four for them. The first three games did not do nearly as well as the fourth one, and they've they're learning and improving, but there's still an element of RNG. There's still an element of luck. And so if you're a studio embarking on your next game, like have a lot of money, have a lot of time, and then spend a lot of time iterating and th- killing things as you, as you go to the next idea. Yeah, I, I would totally agree with that. There's so much of context and circumstance that is beyond your control as a game developer. You could have the best idea in the world with a leading IP, and you might just be too late or too early like look at the graveyard of Clash Royale competitors that came out with different IPs that tried to do the same formula and just they they were just too late um, or they didn't execute as well as Supercell. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I 100% agree with everything Sebastian was saying now. And, and in many ways, it comes down to shots on goal and being able to move quickly. And that's where some of these like hyper casual developers really have a superpower to just like pump out prototypes week after week and just see what hits. And then I think from there, maybe this is taking it in a different direction. There, there are ways you can get early signal on your ideas without having to necessarily go and invest millions and millions of dollars into building the technology. There are ways you can kind of get early signals, whether it's user testing or testing your creatives, um, things like that. So, yeah. And, and I will say just from a pure storytelling perspective, I think it's important to say that we all have survivorship bias, that we yeah. hear a lot of stories from the people who've made it. And so you want, I love Legion TD. I think it's one of the best games of 2021. Uh, it was made by a couple developers and their partners over seven years, grinding away to make a really, truly exceptional game. That For every story here about that, I also know dozens of game developers who are amazing, who worked on projects like The Sims and Civilization, who were also in a hole in San Francisco for 10 years making games, and they didn't do well. And they're happy to have done it because it was just what they wanted to do. And now they're back you know, working at, <laughs> at other game studios and saving up money for the next shot on goal. I think it's fine. I just want to make sure that we dispel this myth that, hey, if you had done the work to select the right game type or seen the right audience or seen the future somehow, you would have been successful. And the answer is no. It's more likely that you take shots on goal. And if you're really passionate and you want to keep doing it, you hope for the best. And and some people are Damien Chazelle and release Whiplash and La La Land. And some people are like the guy who wrote the King speech and took him 50 years to have a hit. Can I ask a follow-up question there, Sebastian? Like w- when you're looking at pitches from uh, aspiring you know, game developers and they're kind of over-indexing on one game idea, um, how, how do you receive that? Like presumably you want them to have a plan for what if that fails, you know? Uh, it depends on the group, right? So if it's, if it's people like Frost Giant where they're like, yo, we're just going to make this work, you, you mm-hmm. found a team. A lot of ventures betting on groups of people doing smart things and hoping to iterate. If it's, if it's someone who's trying to do a triple A idea without having done a triple A idea before or trying to really fixate on a specific game type, 
that's personally a pass from me. I have friends and colleagues who are much better at deep, d- diving deep with game creators to figure it out. I'm far more metrics driven just as from my training. And so a lot of what I do is I actually don't even ask questions about the game genre. And instead, <laughs> I, I focus on, hey, like, how are you thinking about arriving to the conclusion? It's, it's, Maria, to your point, it's less about what you come to conclusion of, whether you like or someone else likes it. It's more of a conclusion of like, how did you get to that process? Because at least in my worldview, if, you, if you're faced with data that says you're wrong, you should probably update your priors. And so that is something that I certainly look at a lot. I, there, that said, there are people at BitCraft and other game devel- um, investors I know who are very thesis-driven, where they're very much looking for a 4X game, or they're very much looking for a hyper-casual game, or very much looking for a FPS game. Those people are just monsters in their own right in terms of their intellectual horsepower, and I just don't think I'm on that scale where I feel that strongly about any game time. I, I spent a lot of this past week playing Vampire, Survivors. <laughs> and it was a great game. And it's like not not exactly Cyberpunk 2077. Yeah. On the shots on go, um, I'm biased towards mobile because I, I work in I work in mobile. So I know that you can do prototypes really quickly. But I also worked on uh I worked in a company that was not mobile, it was PC, and it was a lot harder to get to that first build that you can put live and do that that fast iteration. How how do you think those differences exist within companies and do you have any recommendations if someone is working on a PC or console game how they can get to those metrics quickly? Yeah, I actually am a huge believer. I mean, this is self-serving, so apologies. But I'm a huge believer in that you should iterate on other prof, uh, other platforms and then bring it onto Unreal or Unity afterwards. So a good example of this is the best game I played in the last five years is probably Dota Auto Chess. And Dota Auto Chess initially was built inside of Dota 2 because it's just easier for them to use the existing engine in order to build it out. I've actually seen some of the coolest game projects and the ones I can't talk about as much were were people building on top of the StarCraft 2 map editor, which I never thought I'd see again. <laughs> and it was awesome. I'm, I'm like super excited about these guys and these gals who are doing some really cool stuff there. And so uh, you're completely right. I remember the I remember OpenGL for those of you who are older, and I gotta be honest with you, it's such a pain in the butt trying to remember your multivariable calculus when you're trying to just create something moving across and <laughs> just walking. Whereas uh, I think we're fortunate in that in this era, the Unity engine, the Unreal engines are a lot simpler, and so just don't worry about those bits. I, I'm a huge game loops believer personally, and so what I would argue for people is, hey, at least when you're prototyping. Don't worry about graphical fidelity. Don't worry about a super accurate physics engine. Focus on a thing that you think will keep people engaged and make it fun. Now, for some people, that will look a lot like Candy Crush. <laughs> and, and for some people, that will look like a bullet hell. And for some people, that looks like this like story-driven dating sim. Who knows, right? And I think it's just a function of whatever the game loop is, you should iterate on a game loop as opposed to necessarily trying to uh, put the cart before the horse, if we still use those analogies. I think we do. At least I do. <laughs> I hope I'm not in the past. I, I feel like a boomer all the time, so I, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> yeah, I, I understand the, the feeling. <laughs> and in terms of the the audience, I thought you made a really a really interesting point that it's it's better to do shots on go and not try to get to perfection before deciding what idea to follow by doing deep research into the audience and trying to understand 
considering the audience what kind of stuff they like. And I think, um, like I said at the beginning, when I was trying to get into the industry and, and going through all of these resources, that's sort of the opposite of what they were saying. They were saying, find the audience, um, understand what games they play, understand what motivates them, what will keep them around. But I don't, I never quite understood, like in practice, how are people supposed to do that? Um, Matt, do you have any thoughts? I think that that um, approach, that attitude is still pretty pervasive, um, probably at some of the larger companies, especially. Um, I think this this idea of shots on goal is a, maybe a little bit more recent, certainly with like mobile free to play. Um, you know, maybe Seb can tell me otherwise, but that's that's kind of my take on it. Um, and, you know, it, it was somewhat successful for some of these incumbents. And I think there are ways to go about it. Um, presumably, if you work at one of these companies, they have a lot of data on their players and the, the fans of a given IP and what other games they like to play, what genres they resonate most closely with um, and where some of the opportunities are there. You know, for example, uh, a trend in the last, let's say, five-ish years or so has been to kind of combine uh, genres or combine a core mechanic with a metagame mechanic and see what comes out. Um, and so, you know, presumably you're going to have some market research on which of those might be the the most appealing combinations. We see that our players are playing, um, I don't know, home renovation games or we're a match three company. Well, let's like do a home renovation plus a match three. So this is a really simplistic example, but uh, you get the idea. You know, some of these companies, they've been doing this approach for a long time and they have a lot of data and a lot of um, uh, organization and manpower behind these, this approach to support it and make it keep working, even if it's perhaps not as successful from a philosophical perspective as Sebastian or myself might. <laughs> might think it is. Yeah, and, and I, not to put words in Matt's mouth, and but fortunately he's here so you he can tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> I, I, I'd imagine this is also just us over-indexing and, and over-rotating as well. The, the approach you're describing, Maria, is a fine approach for some percentage of the population, uh, be it at bigger companies or if you're just particularly good at that. Uh, I, I think there's this misnomer that we have what I call the crater myth and like the idea that we have to have a hero in some kind of mold and that they have these like shared experiences and therefore they're the same and they have this outcome. And I just want to straight up reject that premise. There are people who are going to do some really cool stuff. I, I met this lovely uh, couple of co-founders who are working on a new uh, game studio that have a completely different approach. Their core concept is that they have this underserved market and this underserved segment and their entire mental model about developing games is specifically to that segment. That's really cool. I'm hugely supportive of them. And, and uh, like Big Crap put uh, a check into them to lead their round. And we're really excited for them as people. I think, uh, I think both of them are going to be awesome. But that's not the same stuff that other people have done. It's just, it depends on the person. I think if we can just get away from generic do this advice and instead say, here are a bunch of ways to approach it. I think that is probably a, a, a decent outcome. Yeah, and by, by the way, not all developers have the same um, level of ambition in terms of scale, right? It, you might be going after a specific type of gamer, a specific market that is decidedly not mass market. Uh, and then you have, you know, EA, Take-Two, Activision, and so on, the, the big companies that are, you know, deciding to go after 
massive markets that are at large scale. And these are, there's, there's nothing wrong with either approach. They're just different approaches. You're going to take different actions. You're going to staff your game differently. You're going to build with a different ambition in mind, uh, knowing that from the outset. Do you think this is different for Web3 games? Do you think this shots on goal, um, metrics driven is is also how new games could be prioritized in Web3? Y yes. <laughs> yeah, I like, yes. I it, it is, what I'll say, and I think this is probably the story that elucidates this best. When mobile first started, for those of you too young to remember, uh, that mobile is your phone, and so there were games prior to that. When mobile first started, the top five games in 2011 were games like Sword and Sorcery, which were 4 to $10 single-player experiences that worked on your phone and destroyed your battery life. That was what mobile gaming looked like 10 years ago. Today, the top five is all share that they're free to play. They all have built-in social mechanics. They all have built-in in-app purchases, and they're all incredibly networked. And so their synchronous network is probably the biggest commonality across all of these top five mobile games. Matt's project that he's working on is almost certainly all of these things I just described, right? And so that's just a difference in how the format of creations evolved. Right now, what we see in VR gaming, just to use another emerging market, is going to be very different from what we see 10 years from now because as creators and as creatives, you first start with what you know. And for a lot of these people, what they know is Cyberpunk 2077. You, there's an entire cohort of developers who have mobile backgrounds who are coming to Web3. They're, what they're going to build is very going to look much more like threes and 2048 and dots. And then there's going to be this other cohort of people who are, have Matt's background who will probably bring synchronous multiplayer to Web3 at some point. I just think it's just a platform issue. And so... Uh, is one way right or the other? I mean, I think so, but that's just my personal opinion, right? And so I, I would say all of these things probably even work just like they will probably work for VR. Like there's going to be low fidelity VR at some point. VR Tetris, I hear is a ton of fun. And let me tell you, you just really can't improve the graphical fidelity of four cubes, <laughs> right? So uh, one thing that I think is really interesting as it relates to Web3 and, and trying out new game ideas is the speed at which some of these developers can iterate. Um, if you're coding something on the blockchain, it's there for anyone to see your smart contracts, right? And this happened with like Wolf Game. They released Wolf Game and then there was a bunch of sort of copycats that came right afterwards. And I think that that's a pattern that we'll continue to see play out. Someone will come up with a mechanic or a system that really resonates with players. And then you're going to see a bunch of follow-on developers forking that code and doing their own little twist on it. Um, I thought for sure, maybe this has happened, I don't know, but I thought for sure when the Chain Faces Arena happened, I don't know if you, if you guys are familiar with that, um, but when that... Um, when that sort of project kicked off, that there would be a bunch of followers that immediately added like, let me buy back in for X amount of ETH or let me, um, you know, some different mechanics where I can pull out my, my work. I guess I should take a step back and explain what Chain Faces is for the, the listeners who may not be aware. Basically, uh, to really uh, shorten this summary, you bought a, an NFT of a warrior, as a, a Chain Face, which is based off of a previous project called Chain Faces. You can look it up. And you had a set amount of time 
within which to decide, I want to submit this warrior to the arena or not. And then if you miss that timer, it's over, like you missed your shot. And then when you submit it to the arena, it's locked in. You cannot uh, take it out between rounds. You have to wait for a certain period of time. And every round, uh, some percentage of the NFTs were eliminated and gone forever. And the remainder stayed on to the next round. And every round, the bounty went up. So it's kind of similar to like a Squid Games format. And uh, if you pulled out, you get your tiny sliver of the bounty. And or otherwise, you could just stay in full degen and hope to win the kind of lottery ticket prize at the end of it. So that's that was Chain Faces in a nutshell. I thought it was fascinating. And I'm surprised that more developers didn't just like take that idea and fork it and do their own thing. Okay, and um, that, that's that's really interesting. I'm trying to picture this game because I've never played it. Um, I, I was part of the listeners that doesn't know it. Um, yeah, that sounds that sounds really interesting. I'm curious. And uh, sorry, just last question. I think before we move on to to the next topic, I was really curious, Sebastian, if a company um, goes to speak to you and they have this record of failed prototype ideas, would you judge them differently, maybe in a more positive manner, in a more negative manner? Like, what would you do in that circumstance? Uh, you know, I'd, I'd probably judge them in a positive manner, just from a personal standpoint. I certainly think that if you can, if you have a failed track record, but at least you have some track record, that's better than no track record. Uh, I, I don't think it's really a huge deal one way or the other. I think certainly it's just a function of working through things. People, I mean, I, I like to say, I'm just to, to quote a very like truism, like Zynga was like Mark Pincus is like seventh idea or eighth idea or something like that. Discord was a game studio before it became what it is today. Photo Bucket was a game studio before it became what it was. There are a lot of things that just takes reiteration and you just got fed on people. That's just my personal belief, though. Well, I think we'll we'll jump on to the the next to- topic about the costs of uh, buggy game launches. And you've been mentioning uh, Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven a lot, Sebastian, which is a really nice tie in because it is it is related to that. Uh, yeah, I, um, the, the original. The original idea for for this topic is from um, an opinion article in GamesIndustry.biz that was based on the recent patch for Cyberpunk 2077 that now brought the game up to maybe what people would expect uh, an AAA game quality standard to be at when they first start start to play it. And the uh, the, the writer um, called Rob Fahey was exploring the thought that the we'll fix it post-launch strategy is starting to have costs and risks that outweigh um, delaying the release. So uh, I was interested, maybe Sebastian, in first understanding your your opinion in terms of the pros and cons of releasing an incomplete or or buggy game versus delaying its launch. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because for anyone who's gone through QA cycles, the honest answer is you're never done. <laughs> like they're like I've never played or released or worked on a game that was bug free. Explicitly the case. And so what's weird here, and I read the article. I think it's an interesting piece. Where do you have that cutoff? Like that's I think like what Matt needs to decide for his games. And it's one of those hard, really truly hard problems of being a producer and product manager. Is here's your deadline. Here is the game. It will never be done. It will never be done. And especially the way games are made nowadays, where they're you know live ops and continuously developed, 
they, it will never be done. Like truly, like designed never to be done. And so historically, when you had what we called like a final master uh, ecosystem, this is predates a lot of people. Uh, you just had to ship it and have it mastered onto a DVD or a CD or a cartridge. And there was no internet to patch the game in post. And so you spent a lot of time QAing, a lot of time QAing, a lot of time QAing until the deadline. And then once it was out in the wild, you were done. I think people are beginning to think that, hey, because of these games and the styles, people are taking shortcuts. It's unclear to me if that's the case. I'd imagine there's just a deadline and they're probably just QAing like mad up until the deadline and they click launch. And then once it's launched, they're like, okay, now we have another two week sprint to QA some more and go from there. I have yet, if I can one day ship a bug free game, I will probably retire that day because that'd be awesome. Like I, I think if I were to launch a Wordle competitor, it would still be have a bug something, some random form factor where it doesn't render properly on the iPhone 3G or something like that. So, yeah, Matt, how do you, in your experience, draw the line as to where you'd be happy to to release a game? It, it is going to have bugs. How do you how do you decide how many bugs are too many bugs? Uh, th this is where I would put on my product manager hat and try and cost out potential impacts uh, for any bugs that we've maybe identified. Um, you know, th this happens a lot in mobile games. Like you're, you're putting out an update maybe once a month and you know you've got a couple of features in here. You've had some time to QA it. Maybe it came in hot. We don't know like the full impact. Maybe we know that there's a bug but we don't have time to fix it properly. And so it's a kind of cost benefit analysis of like, well, this only affects this specific device. And then as a PM, I go back and look at the data and say, okay, this percentage of our players are playing on this device. And they, let's say they have a 75% chance of, you know, encountering this bug. What percentage of these device owners are also spenders or um, are really like late game players? You can do a whole cost benefit analysis uh, and, and say like, this is the dollar impact that we expect to see from releasing with this particular bug. Now in these examples, like a cyberpunk, there's a lot of bugs and there's just a massive scale of the game. And it's very difficult to do that same exercise for every single bug that you may or may not encounter. And the complexity is going up all the time, right? Not only are games increasing in scale, in fidelity, but they're releasing on more platforms and more devices. And so the effort required to, you know, QA and catch all these bugs is it's just monumental. And so, you know, to Sebastian's point, I don't know that it's possible to catch them all. Uh, eventually, the business owner or product owner has to make a call as to like, we've invested this much money into the development. And especially if this is a live service game, we're going to continue to invest in development. At what point do we just say, we have to get this out into the wild and start to re return some of our investment so that we can keep funding the ongoing service? It's a difficult call. It's a difficult call. I think that's why you see a lot of games stay in beta forever nowadays, where they're like, just like, hey, we're it's technically not released. It's still in beta. Just please don't hurt us for yeah. the for the bugs released. Do you think we'll start seeing this impact player behavior in terms of uh, pre-orders and buying games on day one, day two, day three of release until that first patch comes out? I, I don't know is the honest answer. I can tell you that when I played Cyberpunk 2077, uh, it wasn't that buggy for me, but I also have a 3080. 
So like it's you know I'm I'm at the top end of the spend scale when it comes to computer hardware. Like I have G Sync, I have a 3080, I have the most recent like Intel processor, and so it's really easy for me to say this experience works well on my computer, and so therefore I can just do get the game when I want to get it. I just think it is such a hard thing to uh, unpack, and I, I don't mean this to say that the journalist is wrong. I do think that economics are changing in this ecosystem. And I think the writer did a good job articulating that. I just don't know if there's a solution, <laughs> and so I just don't know is the answer. It's difficult. Um, I um, I think that there is you know increasing backlash for sure against releasing unfinished or buggy products. However, I think we also know that marketing is really effective at building that hype cycle for some of these games. And uh, no matter how many times consumers get burned. There's always going to be a shiny new game on the horizon that everyone's excited about, and they're going to get really hyped about, and they're going to put in their pre-orders, and then all of a sudden, uh, well, it wasn't what we hoped it would be. Um, some of these games, like, let, let me just ask a theoretical question: Could Cyberpunk have ever lived up to the hype that it had behind it when it was coming out? Like, I understand the reality, and I also played. I played it on PS4. It was buggy. But I still enjoyed it. I still thought it was a really uh, fun, beautiful game with its problems, to be sure. But could it have ever lived up to the hype that was propelling it uh, towards its early release? I don't know. Yeah, Maria, I think I think one really interesting example just to point out would be the, the, the Supergiant games guys, right? Specifically around Hades. They basically started early access like years before launch. Right, and they just kept iterating and iterating and iterating on it. And I, I gotta be honest with you, I didn't even realize when the game officially launched. I didn't had I had no idea it hadn't launched yet. <laughs> right, like it won best game in 2021, and I was like, wait, I, I'm swear I played that game in 2018. <laughs> right, and so, and so it's one of those or 2019 rather. It's one of those things where it is so hard because the ecosystem is changing. And I think the biggest thing to recognize is it is changing. And how do we deal with that? Even if you're a Switch game now, there are so many day zero patches. Uh, another fun example would be uh, the new Mario. It's not that new anymore, but the Switch launched up Mario game, Mario Odyssey. That game had some really hilarious game-breaking bugs at launch when they had already mastered the CD and mastered the cartridge for everyone. They had a day zero patch where if you bought the physical version of the game, and this is this came up in the speedrun community apparently, where if you own the physical copy of the game, you could do all these crazy uh, glitches that just aren't did <laughs> not exist in the digital release of the game. And that just shows you how much R&D went between the finalized version and the QAing that happened on the digital release. And so was Cyberpunk, to Matt's point, a little bit too hyped to the point where just no way this is going to be successful? It was delayed for, I think, two presidencies in terms of release timelines. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there would, <laughs> it's probably the case that I was a little bit too hyped. Uh, will that change how people go about their ecosystem? I, I don't know. I, I think certainly you just got to launch things at some point. And, and I'm a huge believer in just launching and iterating anyway. I think the PR hit's a little bit overblown. I, I think that it is changing and there are ways to approach it that are 
different. Um, to your point earlier about like Supergiant and Hades, this is something we still see with games as a service. Um, a great example is Lost Ark that just came out. I just wrote about it in the newsletter last week. That game first released in 2018 uh, in Korea. And it's, it's only now coming to our collective consciousness in the West, but it's gone through a lot of iterations and soft launches and uh, a lot of polish in the years prior. Um, so it, it can be done. Um, another point I wanted to make before we move on is these really high profile, um, you know, half-baked releases or buggy releases, they're, they're all on console and PC, right? Um, and... I think there's something to that. Like there are a lot of examples on mobile of games that release and they're kind of quiet, uh, but they build over time in live service. Free Fire is a great example of this. Like it, you know, it was one of the earliest battle royales on mobile, but it didn't really pick up momentum for a couple of years, and now it's just a juggernaut. Um, and and so I think maybe this is related to the way that user acquisition works on mobile versus PC and console, where uh, of course, the first cohort is really important, but you can continue to improve over time and attract new users or acquire new users that will drive further growth. Whereas with a game like Cyberpunk, um, you kind of launch it and you hope that it takes off, but it's very difficult to recapture that momentum three, six, 12 months down the road after you've finally made these patches. It's, uh, it's much more difficult to climb that mountain again. You took my question, Matt. I was going to ask about Lost Ark. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, I it changed my behavior. Uh, that's I, I felt some empathy with what the writer was was expressing. Um, the game that changed it for me was Anthem. I bought it on day one, and then I I couldn't I couldn't play it. And since then, I I just stopped buying. I wait a year now. That's how conservative I've got. <laughs> and oh, sorry, Matt. I was just going to say, like, I have so many games waiting to be played and the market is so saturated with great games that you can spend your time on. Like, I don't know that you can really afford to be putting out these games that aren't ready because players will just move on or they'll, to your point, Maria, they'll wait for it to go on sale or something and pick it up really cheap. And then, you know, the cost benefit trade off is even worse. And Sebastian, when when you're looking at investing in, in a company, does the track record of their release, the quality of their released games matter? Candidly, we look way too early in the funnel to really mm -hmm. have a good view there. So does it help that you made StarCraft? Yes. Does it help if you made Super Evil Megacorp's uh, Vainglory? Yes. But certainly the ecosystem's changed, right? The environment in which StarCraft was released, they did a patch maybe a year, maybe once a year, maybe twice a year. They had expansions, right? That's just a different environment and ecosystem that we live in today. And so one thing I always warn my friends and colleagues about is don't over-index on the past. Because if you over-index on the past, you end up having some really bad mechanisms here. And so what you all find is just like underlying value of team and then hope for the best there. Yeah, makes makes a lot of sense. I think it's definitely something to keep in mind, and that's that's been an, an overall theme in today's podcast: not over indexing in in the past, <laughs> and just keep on moving forward, risk it, um, and don't overanalyze. I think it's a, a summary of what we've been saying so far. 
And I think then we'll just move on to the last topic today, which is uh, YouTube's announcement for content creator NFTs. So this was in a, a blog post of YouTube's chief product officer, Neil Mohan, um, where I'm just going to quote, um, we believe new technologies like blockchain and NFTs can allow creators to build deeper relationships with their fans. For example, giving a verifiable way for fans to own unique videos, photos, art, and even experiences from their favorite creators. I didn't quite know what to think of this. It just felt quite abstract. I'm not really present in the Web3 space and, and NFTs. Um, Sebastian, do you, have a, do you have thoughts of what in practice this could look like? Yeah, I mean, my, my, big, my big push is just let's wait and see. Let's see what happens. I certainly think that there's a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of, I would say, fragmentation in terms of people's views of NFTs right now. Some people think it's literally going to destroy the world. Some people think it's literally the fourth, third, second, fifth coming of Jesus, depending on like where in the, in the religious spectrum you are. And, and it's everything in between. I, I would say specifically here, what I've known YouTube to do and I've known what these folks to do is focus on improving creator monetization. I think back to something we said at the top of the show, oftentimes a lot, most systems break down to user acquisition, retention, monetization. And so the question for them is, do they want NFTs to be which of those three things? And I think that's going to be the biggest delineator of what this implementation looks like. Because if their focus is on YouTube NFTs being a monetization mechanism, it's going to look very different than if it's a user acquisition or retention mechanism. And I think that's something that we haven't fully grepped yet. And for what it's worth, it's not YouTube's fault. No one's really figured it out yet. I am really interested because YouTube is one of the few platforms I've seen where they have such a large inbuilt audience that there might be something there that you may want to own the video of Freddie Wong blowing up a building. And so we'll see if there are some implementations there as well. I was, I was thinking about this from uh, a games perspective because a lot of uh, you know, marketing now for games relies on content creators and then producing content for for your games. And I was thinking, I know that Supercell has creator codes mm -hmm. where you can boost a creator, and then each percentage of a purchase that you make, I think it goes it goes to to that creator. And I was wondering, you know, are, are we going to see in this a uh, Web three world where the creators for your game, they have their own NFTs and you can buy them directly and then you can go to a store in game to use those those tokens to buy something exclusive. I don't know. Like how how do you do you have any thoughts on how this could apply to games? I I will say like frankly, YouTube as a game ecosystem is far more based for user acquisition and than it is for anything else. And certainly you could have that you know, Epic has, I think, a really cool creator code ecosystem where you can like type in your credit card and get some uh, value out of it. What, what I will say is that I just like don't know if that's their focus. And that, that I think is the, the thing that like continues to jump out at me as if that's their focus, completely agree with you, Maria. I think you can just implement it and I think it'll be fine, right? But if, you, if they're focused on different KPIs, uh, like how are they going to view this world? A good example of this is on the Twitch side. If you care more about viewable minutes than you do about unique users, there are ways to uh, augment your incentives around unique um, users versus uh, viewable minutes. As it turns out, aggregating a bunch of people who have one person watching, they play. If you, if you have one fan and you pay 10 hours a day 
you have exactly the same amount of output as someone who has 10 fans and plays one hour a day, right? And so there are ways to like work through that ecosystem in that way. My concern is that they like, I, my, my hope is that they know, but they may not know either, right? I think that's one of the fun things about this new world is that a lot of these implementations are people just like crossing their fingers and hoping for the best. Matt, do you have any thoughts? Um, I think it's I think it's very interesting, and I I'm not sure it's it's um, I'm not sure that YouTube is taking this strictly from a, a gamer perspective, right? Like I think they probably look at this as a maybe even an existential threat if they're thinking about it really, you know, down the road. But it's it's uh, the NFT uh, economy is is such a game changer for the creator economy. And YouTube being such an integral part of that, I think that they're thinking about it like how do we keep creators on our platform and how can we make it easy for them to tap into this new world of NFT? So it, maybe it's something like allowing them the tools to just really quickly mint an NFT or a token that will that they can sell to their fans, that they can use to gate um, channels or videos behind maybe as a, a form of patronage for some of these creators. Like right now it's an ads driven business. Um, and that works very well for YouTube, but there are probably some creators out there that would prefer not to serve ads to their fans and instead offer them an NFT or a creator token of some kind, uh, that would allow them to you know, support their work, but not have to pump their feed full of ads. Um, so, that's that's my first reaction is that YouTube is coming at this from a creator economy standpoint and games is just one small part of that overall creator economy. Do you have any other thoughts on YouTube's NFTs? All right. Well, it seems like we have a little bit of time left. So I did prepare uh, a quick question if, if we had some some minutes. So Matt. What is the latest wow moment you had with a game? Something that made you go, oh, this is unexpected. Interesting. Um, hmm. Lost Ark has been a wow moment for me, I have to say. Uh, you know, I, as I mentioned, I was writing the piece for Master of the Meta last week, and that kind of took me down the rabbit hole to learn more about this game. I am not historically a big MMOs guy. But uh, I have really enjoyed Lost Ark um, because of the way that it, it, well, one, it's just super polished, and two, the way that it brings a lot of free-to-play best practices into the space, um, and it kind of scratches that Diablo itch for me a little bit, like the isometric camera and just destroying uh, hordes of of monsters. Um, But it adds these little kind of like quality-of-life features from free-to-play that you see in like a like a lineage or um, um, what's the other one? A black desert, like the mobile um, RPGs, MMORPGs. Um, so that for me has been the the biggest like revelation. I spent a lot of this last weekend playing Lost Ark and leveling up, and I'm really enjoying it right now. I do wonder if this is going to become best practice in the industry. Um, we already do this a little bit in mobile games where you restrict your your soft launch to some countries before bringing it globally. And I wonder if this successful example of Lost Art, because that's something I've been hearing. I haven't played it myself. That's something I've been hearing from uh, reviews and people who've played it is just praising the level of polish and uh, feature completeness of the game. 
So I do wonder if we'll just see other companies when they're building these big world type games of, of taking a similar strategy. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, like scaling up in these, it, as you said, it's it's common practice in mobile now, and it lets you prove out your um, bigger systems that may be a little bit riskier, catch bugs, as we were talking about earlier. Um, there's a lot of good to be gained from just putting your game in the hands of players and seeing how it works. And if your goal is ultimately to do this big event and unveiling it in the West, quote unquote, whatever that means, like tier one countries, let's say, um, you know, they, they've had a lot of experience leading up to this point. And then they have a partner like Amazon that has the scale and capacity to help them reach their kind of lofty goals. Um, and you could just quickly compare this to what happened with New World, uh, which was another Amazon MMO that was successful at launch, but then encountered all these economy issues, right? Which in theory, if they had taken a similar approach to Lost Ark and released it in a few uh, different territories prior to just massive worldwide launch, in theory, that would have been caught, right? Like they would have figured that out ahead of time. Um, maybe not, maybe I'm oversimplifying, but it's an interesting comparison point. Mm-hmm. And Sebastian, what was your latest wow moment? Uh, so I will say my favorite one so far was just how darn good Vampire Survivors is. Highly recommend the game. It's it's really fun to be the bullet hell you've always wanted to be. So I will say it's really cool to see these game ecosystems and sort of creativity from people. And it's going to be a lot of fun. Oh, and, and the new Pokemon game is great. I, I think that's all good. Under, underrated somehow, despite being really good. <laughs> I, I don't know the game of the vampires, actually. Oh, well, Vampire Survivors. It? Highly yeah. recommended. I think it's like two or three US dollars. It's on Steam. I think it might be on Epic Store. It is a roguelike where you're the bullet hell <laughs> and you got to kill a lot of vampires. Yeah, that sounds like a nutshell. Yeah, no, it's, it's literally that simple <laughs> and it's freaking fun. I have, to, I have to go check it out. I might have to buy a computer. I've never owned a, a gaming computer. Oh, God. So but the best I'm, part I'm about it out. is that you can play on really bad computers as well, although that's a little bit laggy. Uh, and so... It's actually easier when it's a little bit laggy because you can sort of dodge things a little bit faster. But overall, <laughs> highly recommend it again. I thought you had a supercomputer. Oh, I have no issues with this. I'm just letting you know right. that this is, this is the design philosophy they have. <laughs> well, it was lovely to have you on the podcast. It was good to... I think, I think the topics hopefully will be helpful to what we were saying at the, beginning, at the beginning of the episode, someone out there trying to make these decisions. I hope that we managed to help you, even if it's just the 1%. And yeah, um, if you want to continue this discussion, you can join Navix Discord, we're there. Um, if you want to share your comments or your feedback, my email's in the show notes, I'd love to hear from you. And I think we'll sign off and see you next week in the next episode. Bye everyone. 